0: We've made it all the way up to Leviticus chapter 25, and this chapter serves as sort of a sequel to chapter 23. In chapter 23, we walked through all those various festivals, some of them weekly, uh, some of them took up almost the entire month, as with the fall festivals, and God, it was clear, had orchestrated Israel's calendar so as to orient their entire lives around him. God wanted his people to be acutely aware of his presence, of his kingship, of the fact that he was Lord not only over their territory, but over their very lives. And what we observe in this particular chapter is that God also has some other times that are special that he wants the people to observe, specifically the Sabbath year which would come once every seven years. And the year of Jubilee, which would occur once every 50 years. This chapter is built around creating an Eden-like society where the people live in God's presence and there is prosperity throughout the land. Indeed, all of these laws sort of have kind of in their DNA covenant fidelity, family stability, and the prospect of creating economic equity and opportunity for the poor. But what we have is God's holy people living in a heavenly society under the rule of a holy king. Indeed, a holy society would be established if the people were to keep these laws. You know, there are a myriad of applications in these fifty-five verses, uh, a myriad of uh, things to learn. And I've tried to boil them all down into one one big idea. That I think one of the main ideas of this chapter is that, that everything belongs to God and ought to be stewarded according to his holy word. Primarily, I'm drawing that out of verse 23, verse 42, and verse 55, where the reason for the land being redeemed and the people being redeemed in the Jubilee is the fact that God owns them, that the land and the clans, the people, belong to the Lord. and have your outline there before you. We'll talk about the Sabbath and the Jubilee years. We'll talk about land rules as they relate to the Jubilee, leasing out your land and redeeming it. And then we'll talk about redeeming and relating to the poor in the land. Let's pray and then we will begin. Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us, We ask that you would do these things by your word. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Leviticus chapter 25, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. It's important to note here that the rest of the book, the instructions have come to Moses from inside the tent of meeting. And so these instructions are actually given to Moses prior to the rest of the book. And so what he's done is he's put this material at the end of Leviticus in order to prepare the people for life as they enter into the land. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. I speak to the Israelites and tell them, when you enter the land I am giving you, the land will observe a Sabbath to the Lord. You may sow your field for six years, and you may prune your vineyard and gather its produce for six years. But there will be a complete Sabbath rest for the land in the seventh year. A Sabbath to the Lord. You are not to sow your field or prune your vineyard. You are not to reap what grows by itself from your crop or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. It is to be a year of complete rest for the land. Whatever the land produces during the Sabbath year can be food for you, for yourself, your male servant, your female servant, the hired worker, the alien who resides with you. All of its growth may serve as food for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. So once every seven years, the land is to imitate the pattern of the people. Each week, the people of Israel would work six days and rest on the seventh day. Resting on the seventh day expressed their dependence upon the Lord, their God. Resting on the seventh day was a time for them to remember that God was both their creator and their redeemer. He created the world and he redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt, made them his own. Likewise, the the land, once every seven years, was to have rest from being worked. The personification of the land here arrests our attention. It draws our attention to the fact that God cares not just for his people, but also for all of his creation. He cares for the very earth that he created and the animals that live within it. I mean, verse 7, all of its growth may serve as food not only for the people, but for your livestock and for the wild animals. God cares about His creation. And one of the things we see here is the fact that God has given stewardship over the earth to humanity. That's a fact that is established early on in Genesis when the man is told, you will have dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. You're going to work the ground, cultivate it, create from it, make civilization, go build. So, so too here we see that Israel is responsible for faithful stewardship of the land. They're to care for God's creation. Likewise, we are to care for God's creation. We, we don't need to go so far as many in our culture as to make environmentalism some kind of religion, you know, worshiping Mother Earth. But we do need to take the right approach to utilizing the resources of the earth. We want to make sure that we are not abusing the earth, that we are stewarding it in such a way as to bring glory to God. We want to care for creation. Indeed, this is our Father's world. and Therefore, we do well to express the same tender love and care towards it as He does. Psalm 24, 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, because He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This is God's world, and we we should care for it. The land needs rest. The second time that God asks the people to observe is the year of Jubilee which we're introduced to in verses 8 through 12. You're to count seven sabbatical years, seven times seven years, so that the time period of the seven sabbatical years amounts to 49. Then you are to sound a trumpet loudly in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month. You will sound it throughout your land on the day of atonement. You are to consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim freedom in the land for all its inhabitants, it will be your jubilee when each of you is to return to his property, his land, and each of you to his clan, his family. The 50th year will be your jubilee. When you are not to sow, reap what grows by itself, or harvest its unintended vine. Untended vines. It is to be holy to you because it is the jubilee. You may only eat its produce directly from the field. And so we see that during the year of Jubilee, after 49 years, as they enter into the 50th year, on the Day of Atonement, they would sound a ram's horn, which would be a proclamation of freedom in the land. And the specific freedom that is in mind here is a freedom from debts. You see, what would happen is Israelites would fall into poverty uh, by a number of different means. Sometimes uh, the poverty would be the result of things within their control, laziness, or often things that were outside of their control, famine, widowhood, aging, or oppression. For for whatever reason, they would fall into poverty and they would be required to sell their land. They could sell part of their land. They would be able to sell all of their land. And if they got poor enough, they would even have to sell themselves into servitude. What we see here in Jubilee, and we'll see throughout the rest of the chapter, is that God has set up a redemption program so that they don't have to stay in that poverty. He's found a way, he created a way, he he has weaved into his society a remedy for generational poverty. And it revolves around jubilee, when the people can return to their land and have the economic opportunity to make a living. Land in Israel was tied to the way that you might prosper, to the way that you would make money. You sow crops on your land, you you bring them in, and that's how you make money. And so if you sow crops and you don't make money right away, well, it's real easy to fall into poverty. Land is tied to economic welfare. And so, in the year of Jubilee, debts would be canceled. People would return to their land, the land that was given to them by God, and to their clans, to their families. Their families were a bit more extended than ours. And these would provide to them both economic and social benefits. The economic benefit of having land to work. They could work and earn a living. And they could also have a Viable source of help and support as they were surrounded by their families. None of this would work if the people were not faithful to the covenant. At any rate, we, we see that the year of Jubilee it proclaims freedom, the cancellation of debts. People get to return to land and their clan. But, but a question arises. Well, why this particular law? We've talked about economic well-being, and so certainly one of the reasons is that the land is how you can make money. If you didn't have land, well, you were probably signed up for generational poverty. But the primary reason, the bigger reason, comes to us in verse 23, where we read this. The land is not to be permanently sold because This is God speaking. It is mine. And you are only aliens and temporary residents on my land. You are to allow the redemption of any land that you occupy. And so the bigger reason is that the land is a source of wealth, a source of economic opportunity, and it belongs not to the people that God has entrusted it to, ultimately, ultimately it belongs to him. And so you can hear God saying, I am the king. All that you have belongs to me and you are to steward it appropriately. And in the year of Jubilee, if someone has leased out their land, then it's theirs again because I said so. God even uh, puts in laws about fair trade. You can see in verse 13 through 17 some of these real estate rules. Since there wasn't a permanent purchase of land, it's probably better to speak about it as leasing the land out. He says you're to fare basically. He says if you're going to buy the land, you will approximate its price based on the its proximity to the year of jubilee. So, for example, if if we are five years out from the year of jubilee and there's a sabbath year in there, and each year counts for you know you know a thousand dollars an acre. So all right, sabbath year, and then it'll be jubilee. And so, uh, you know, five minus two is three. So I, I would need to pay three thousand dollars an acre. It's a fair price. Whereas if if we are ten years away from the jubilee, you know, uh, it might be a thousand dollars an acre. All right, uh, uh, you know, one year is a Sabbath year. I got a jubilee year in there, and so eight thousand dollars would be a, a fair price for the land. And so in thirteen through seventeen, God repeats this twice. He says. Uh, in the year of Jubilee, each of you will return to his property. If you make a sale to your neighbor or purchase from him, do not cheat one another. And then again in verse 17, you are not to cheat one another, but to fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. And so what he is saying is, seller, don't charge more than the land is worth. Don't be out here three years from the, the, the year of Jubilee, trying to sell your land for far more than it's actually worth at that period of time. And he's saying, buyer, you who are buying land, don't try to cheat the one who is selling it. You know, don't don't lowball them. Pair, pay a fair price. It'll work together towards fair deals. God sets a price on the land. He is working towards keeping a fair and just society. That's how God rules with righteousness and care for all of his people, for the buyer and the seller, for the rich and the poor. God cares about justice. He sets the price of the land. And he says that the right of redemption is, Remains, right? You are allowed to redeem any land that you occupy. What this means, what redemption means in this context, is simply to to buy back. People are able to buy back their land. So if you sell part of it because you've fallen into poverty, and then you come into prosperity, well you can turn around and say, Hey, the parcel of land I said I bought for I sold to you, I want to buy it back. And the person who purchased it from you has to sell it to you for a fair price. It really is incredible, God's protection of, of the poor here. If you want to think about the rite of redemption, I don't. this isn't a perfect one-to-one, but you could think of it this way. If you've ever thought of, used a pawn shop or you're familiar with how that works, maybe you've seen uh, Pawn Stars, right? Uh, you go and you take an item that has some value to it, you give it to the pawn shop, they give you what amounts to a loan, You can go and spend that money, and then if you get enough money back, you can go back to the pawn shop, and you pay them, and you get your your item back. But if you take too long, your item becomes the pawn shop's new merchandise, right? It's kind of similar, maybe not, I don't know, uh, where you can sell your land, lease your land to somebody who wants to harvest all the crops on it, and then you can come back, if you've recovered financially, and then recover your land. You can buy it back. You redeem it it doesn't have to be just you. Right? We see here a situation where somebody has sold part of their land in verse 25. If your brother becomes destitute and sells part of his property, his nearest relative may come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no family redeemer but he prospers and obtains enough to redeem his land, he may calculate the year since its sale, repay the balance to the man he sold it to, and return to his property. But if he cannot obtain enough to repay him, what he sold will remain in the possession of its purchaser until until the year of Jubilee. It is to be released at the Jubilee so that he may return to his property. And so there are three scenarios here. He can buy back the land himself if he prospers. A kinsman redeemer, which would be a close family relative, if they had the means by which to purchase his land. They are to buy it back from the person he sold it to. And then lastly, if none of that happens, ultimately God redeems the land in the year of Jubilee. He's able to return to his property. Everybody kind of understands that, but you could hear the question arising. Well, what about our houses in our walled cities where the land hasn't necessarily been divvied up to a specific clan or family? What happens if we... If we try to sell a piece of property there, we read, if a man sells, verse 29, if a man sells a residence in a walled city, his right of redemption will last until a year has passed after its sale. His right of redemption will last a year. If it is not redeemed by the end of a full year, then the house in the walled city is permanently transferred to its purchaser throughout his generations. It is not to be released on the jubilee. But houses and settlements that have no walls around them are to be classified as open fields. The right to redeem such houses stays in effect, and they are to be released at the Jubilee. And so but the question is here, if we are in a prominent city, and we have a house in a prominent city that is walled, uh, and I sell my home, can I redeem that? It's not as essential to my life, right? Land is what's tied to economic prosperity. And God says, well, you can sell it, but you only have a year to redeem it, at which point it becomes the permanent property of the purchaser. A little bit like a, like a limited warranty on something you might buy, right? For, for a year or two years or whatever product you buy, if something goes wrong, you can, you can take it back to the manufacturer and they'll, they'll replace it and they'll give you a new one. It's kind of the reverse of that. You sell your your land and there's one year time period, a warranty, where you can go back and say, actually, I I want that back. I want to resolve the situation. Then the question comes, okay, we we get that there's a year and then it becomes the permanent property of somebody else if I sell my house in a walled city. But what about the Levites? The Levites, they don't have any land. Remember, their inheritance is in The Lord. Their activities are connected to the tabernacle. And so instead of these large tracts of land, they were given 48 cities and some pasture land around the outside of them. What what if a, a Levite falls into poverty and sells his home? Well, the Lord says that their houses and their cities are different, that they can always be redeemed, and that they are to be returned to them in the year of Jubilee. Furthermore, the pasture land is never to be sold. It's their permanent possession. God wants to ensure the well-being, the financial well-being of his people. It's to protect them. So these are some of the laws for redeeming real estate. And then in verse 35, we transition to rules that relate to those who are really, really poor. I mean, real estate's still involved, but it, it moves to the point where before we've seen someone who is selling part of their property. In verses 35 to 38, we see the, the kind of person who has sold all of their property. And then in verses 39 through 52, we see someone that is so destitute that they've actually sold themselves into servitude. Look at verse 35. If your brother becomes destitute, And cannot sustain himself among you, you're to support him as an alien or temporary resident so that he can continue to live among you. Do not profit or take interest from him, but fear your God and let your brother live among you. You are not to lend him your silver with interest or sell him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And so so God says, he's created, if you are the creditor, the, the situation here is a creditor and a debtor. He says, someone is in your debt, they've sold all that they have. Don't continue to perpetuate their poverty and oppress them. He says, instead, give them loan without interest. Continue to provide work for them, which would have included food staples, likely housing, and work. Work, food, housing, interest-free loan. These are all generous things. He's he's calling his people to be generous to one another. To do the opposite of oppressing the poor, but rather they are to try to lift the poor out of their poverty. The creditor is to be generous. Generous. Over and over again throughout this chapter and throughout the Scriptures, we see that God is concerned for the poor. The poor are not to be exploited, but exalted. They're not to be taken advantage of, but to be taken by the hand and helped. We do well to think about how we might help and be generous to the poor still, we have another scenario before us where the poverty becomes so abject that the only viable option is for an Israelite to sell him or herself into servitude. I know a lot of you have the word slavery in your translations there. But I've opted for the word servitude, uh, which I think is is a better translation of the word simply for, for a lot of reasons, uh, because uh, in, in Hebrew, evid has a illegitimate, can refer to illegitimate slavery, as the Israelites experienced in Exodus, but it can also refer to legitimate forms of servitude, as it does here. There are four different ones. It can refer to a, a king's servant, to God's servant, to an indentured servant, or even to a, a permanent servant. And servants in Israel, in Israel had legal rights. But remember, the law stipulated that if they were abused, they were to go free. They had the right to rest on the Sabbath. Servants were required to be treated with compassion and dignity. And so servants in, in Israel were not the same thing as what we think of when we think of slavery in the Greco-Roman world. Or when we think of the, the chattel slavery that was predicated on man-stealing that plagued the United States in the 17th and 18th centuries. This is not the same thing at all. This is a voluntary activity. And the truth is that practically servitude at this time looked like more like employment does today. So you you would have most people kind of running small businesses on their property, on their land, and their their slaves or their servants would simply be workers or employees that lived there. Again, servants had legal protections that safeguarded their humanity and protected them from complete impoverishment. In servitude was better than starvation this kind of service allowed people great benefits that's why they sold themselves into it they would gain food and shelter a job and a place in a stable family i mean the potential benefits were good enough that some people sought to become permanent servants. One of the, the main things you'll find here in this chapter is that God wants to make very clear that the Israelites shouldn't be permanent servants because they belong to him. And that's distinct from what he has to say about the nations. The nations can, can function as kind of permanent servants. They can be traded or transferred from one family to another. You see, some of that property language makes people uncomfortable often, but it's no different than we speak figuratively about an athlete being traded when we say, man, he really is an asset. Or we talk about a person who transfers at work. We use commercial language to refer to people. And likewise, there in, in, in verse, I should have known where it was. Uh, I, it's not 42. There it is, 45, when it talks about people being traded as, as property or inherited as property, it's commercial language being used to refer to these servants. It doesn't devalue Their humanity. Still, the Israelites are not to function in terms of permanent servanthood because, verse 42, they are my servants, says the Lord, that I brought out of the land of Egypt. You see it again in in 55. They're to be released at Jubilee. For the Israelites are my servants. They are my servants that I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Nevertheless, we know that Exodus makes provision for those who would want to be servants forever. That In Exodus 21, we have that kind of odd ritual that we're not really familiar with, wherein if a, a slave wanted to make his status permanent, he would take an awl, which is like a sharp, nail-like object, come to the door of his master's house, you know, put his ear against it, and then the master would, would pierce the ear and he would become a a permanent, it was a sign of a covenant between him and his, his master. So this could be a really good situation. Again, it's not bad to have a source of food and shelter and work and to be a part of a stable family. I think sometimes we have this caricature of relationships of authority and submission. When we immediately go, any relationship where there is a power dynamic that is imbalanced, well, that's, that's toxic. It's, it's really bad. But that's simply not true. Power is not dehumanizing necessarily. Relationships wherein authority exists are good or bad, depending on how that power or authority is exercised. In fact, God has built relationships of authority and submission into humanity. We are all to submit to Him as our King. He is benevolent. He He has a good authority that He exercises over our lives. And He blesses us. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Their husbands are to exercise a good and benevolent authority that brings them blessing. Children are to submit to parents. And if that authority is being rightly used, it will bring blessing to the children. As Christians, we understand that authority is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, God created it to be a very good thing. And good authority from a benevolent master could so bless a person that was in servitude that they would opt for it for the rest of their lives. We, we know what this is like, don't we? We who were once slaves to sin, following the, the paths of our flesh, doing whatever we desired, opting for our rule instead of God's rule. And yet at some point, we encountered Christ he quelled our rebellion. We realized that He's not a tyrant king. <laughs> no, He's the, the crucified king. He's the king who comes and takes on the form of a servant to lay down His life for His people. And we're, we're able to say with with paul in romans 6:17 thanks be to god that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness when we come to christ we recognize that we have a terrible taskmaster that sin reigns over us in such a way as to abuse us and to cripple us and to put us down. And when we come to Christ, there is a great jubilee. We are free from the debt of sin that we owe to God. That sin is canceled and we come to the one who is our king, our benevolent redeemer. And we say, this is good. This is king this is the authority i want to serve for the rest of my life here's my ear where is your door put the owl through it i'm yours you were pierced for my transgressions you died for me well let me die to myself so that i might live to you god let me take up a cross and follow you jesus You are a king who is worthy of glory and honor and praise and worship. A king who is worthy of my whole life. Indeed, if you are a Christian, you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Whole Christian life is summed up in that verse. We are not our own. We belong to God. And it is our only hope in life or in death. God has redeemed us from our sin. He redeems anyone who who repents of their sin and puts their trust in Him. And we have a wonderful picture of that as He redeems His people. Even the poorest of the poor from servitude. You can see the, the laws of redemption there in 39 through 55. A brother, kinsman, redeemer like before, might redeem the person. The person might redeem themselves out if they, they earn enough money. But ultimately, jubilee comes. The debt is canceled. And all the Israelites get to return to their land and to their clan get a fresh start, a new beginning, where they will have a social safety net of family and community, as well as economic opportunity to build wealth for themselves. It really is a brilliant system. In verses 18-19, through 19, God gives us uh, motivation to the people why they might keep these rules. He says, You're to keep my statutes and my ordinances and carefully observe them so that you may live securely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit so that you can eat, be satisfied, and live securely in the land. And so God says, You want motivation to keep the seven-year Sabbath and to keep the year of Jubilee, to make good business deals with one another, to be generous to the poor, to rightly exercise authority over any servants in your care, to happily serve the Lord your God if you are in a position of servitude. You want reasons to live in this radical way. Well, here they are. If you observe my rules, you will live securely in the land and you will be satisfied. I, God says, I will give you satisfaction and security. My rules will bring you blessing if you keep them. That is some great motivation. And yet verse 20 anticipates a little bit of pushback. And we can imagine why why this question might come up. Verse 20, if you wonder, I love that God anticipates uh, their objection and gives them this rejoinder. If you wonder, well, what will we eat in the seventh year if we don't sow or gather our produce? I will appoint my blessing for you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating from the previous harvest. You will be eating this until the ninth year when its harvest comes in. So so God can hear the people saying, yeah, but if we don't work for an entire year, that's going to set us back. Can you imagine saying, every seventh year, most of y'all are retired though, so this might, but every seventh year, I'm not going to work. I live paycheck to paycheck, I'm not going to work, I'm just going to live on what I've already had, what I've already made, what God has already provided for me. I mean, this is is a big step of faith. And the Lord says, don't worry about it. I will provide for you such abundant harvests that you will be able to make it through these other years as you keep my rules. God always supplies for what he demands. He gives us what we need in order to be obedient to him. So you could see a very similar objection to everything in this chapter. God, shouldn't I try to squeeze every last penny out of every business deal that I make? I need to make sure I'm financially secure in the future. Should I really put myself out there with interest-free loans? Make myself secure in the future. God says don't worry about any of that. Worry about obeying me. I am your king. All of your wealth, everything you have, belongs to me. Therefore, you should steward it according to my word. You should use all that you have to bless others. To honor me and to love your neighbor. What you have, God says to his people, is not just about you. It should serve your family, and the rest of the covenant community. I think some of us can come up with some of our own objections about giving to the poor, serving those around us, right? I mean, I, I immediately thought of all the worries and excuses I often come up with in my own mind when I think about Serving the Lord in really practical but also really hard ways. He drew my mind to that famous passage in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They do not sow or reap or gather into barns. That sounds familiar. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothing? Observe how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread, and yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. But I love what Jesus says here. Don't serve money. Don't serve your wealth. Serve the God who gives them to you. Be faithful with what God has entrusted to you. Seek first the kingdom of God, and He'll provide for you everything you need. So I think we can learn from the Israelites here that we ought to steward our resources according to God's Word. We have to seek first His kingdom, trusting that He will provide for us. God always supplies us with what he demands. This chapter is really difficult to bring across one-to-one applications uh, because of all the differences between Israel and us. I mean, maybe one of the biggest ones is the fact that uh, the wealth pie is kind of fixed here, right? There's only so much land in your assigned land, whereas we live in a, a society now where wealth can actually be created. And so it's it's difficult to to make some of these applications, but I think we can say a few things. One uh, is that we want to build healthy families. We want to build healthy families here in our church and in our community. I think that starts with a commitment to God's Word, to raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord to belonging to one another as a church, correcting one another, teaching one another, gathering together in order to worship the Lord our God, giving ourselves to those things that God has called us to. We want to we build healthy families in that way. I think we also want to build healthy families in terms of considering how we can create uh, economic and social stability for one another and for others in our community. I mean, this is one of the things the the Jubilee did, right? It created economic equity and opportunity for the poorest of the poor, at least once every 50 years, which would have been about once every generation. There's an opportunity to, to grow and to create wealth. That's, I think, a very difficult application because it's not like a concrete, like, go therefore and do this. But it's one of the things that really helps families grow healthily and to be stable. If you have debt hanging over your family, it impacts everything else. And the Jubilee canceled debt and and gave the opportunity to work and make money, gave the opportunity to return to family and clan, a viable source of help and support. I think we can provide lots of that for one another within the church. Opportunities to, to make money community that offers help and support? Still, as we think about extending our love to our neighbors and the community around us, we have to grapple with very difficult questions. One commentator offered these. What does it mean for us to show this love to those around us? How do we encourage economic policies and laws that fight against structures that perpetuate debt? How do we encourage policies and laws that allow people to maintain social dignity and provide for their own needs? These are are difficult questions. But I think they're questions that are worthy of our thought and our energy. Maybe for some of us, aside from thinking about kind of on a a big level, how we can help raise up the poor from poverty and, and love them, maybe on a smaller level we can start really small one of the things uh, some, of, some of you have started doing is serving at the Nelson County Food Pantry a few days a month, maybe one day a month. I encourage you, it's a small step. Serve at the food pantry. Help feed families in need. Part of helping to build healthy families is by helping hurting families, broken families and hurting people. A really simple way to do that is by meeting some of those physical needs. If you want to know about helping at the food pantry, you can talk to Mike. He'll, he'll be happy uh, to give you some of that information. We want to help build healthy families. We want to help hurting families. And I think the last lesson I want to point out, so the, the first two were we want to build healthy families. The second was we want to help hurting families. Uh, the, the last lesson I want to point out from this chapter is that we we want to wait for Jubilee. We want to wait for the return of our king, King Jesus. Before I do that, though, one more comment on what came before. There are a lot of applications from this, and I think even as I read this chapter and prepared to preach it and and just struggled together with all that it teaches, uh, I really was struck by, man, I feel kind of heavy. (laughs) It's, It's a lot. I don't want you to feel that. I do want you to respond to God's word however he leads you and find a way to be obedient, but I don't want you to be crushed beneath these implications. Not every, every possible thing you might do for the glory of God is not your responsibility. Does that make sense? Every possibility is not your responsibility. So, for example, all of us, might, uh, all of us should be committed to opposing abortion. For some of us, however, how that opposition to abortion will map out onto our lives because we believe that thou shalt not kill and every person is made in the image of God, worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. For some of us, that means praying that abortion would end. For others, it it means being active politically. For others, it'll mean volunteering at a, a pregnancy support center. For others, it'll mean giving to such an organization. But none of us is responsible to do all of these things all at the same time. Right, Or maybe, just likewise with the poor, we want to be committed to creating housing. On You can come up with all these various um, projects that would be good things for us to do. And we ought to be committed to doing what God has called us to, but nobody can do everything. But together as the church, everybody can do something. And we can glorify God by being obedient to His Word. So grapple with the text and how it might call you to respond and put your hope in Christ. Indeed, the last lesson is that we should wait for the return of our King who is himself the Jubilee. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4, stands up and reads this in the, in the um, synagogue. reads, from the scroll of Isaiah, a portion which is predicated on the year of Jubilee here in Leviticus 25. This is what he says, verse 18 of Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the Jubilee. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled. Jesus is saying, I am the servant of the Lord. I am good news to the poor and to those who are poor in spirit. I am good news to the captive and to the spiritually captive. I am good news to the blind and to the spiritually blind. I am good news to the oppressed and to the spiritually oppressed. I am the Lord's favor. I bring His grace and His mercy to anyone who will receive it. you feel as if you were at the end of your rope? You are crushed beneath abject poverty. You you feel captive. You are blind. Jesus says, I am here. I set captives free. I give the blind their sight. I bring good news to the poor. Jesus says, I am your jubilee. I will set you free from your slavery. I will bring you back into the land, back home to the place that God has for you. Non-Christian, this is good news for you if you will have it. Jesus Christ redeems all who come to him in repentance and faith. Church, this is such good news for us we should celebrate the fact that Jesus has canceled our sin debt. He's paid for it with His blood. He's redeemed us. He's bought us for His own. Adopted us into His family. And He's promised to return and to make this earth into a new Eden and to take us home to it with Him and with one another. This is our great hope. So that in times of prosperity, we are eagerly waiting for Christ to return, thinking the best is yet to come. And so that in times of great suffering, when the night is darkest, we we can still remember what God said when it was light out. The sorrow may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning, we can remember that He has promised to return. And we can wait expectantly for the return of our good and mighty King. He is our Creator and our Redeemer. Everything belongs to Him. We ought to honor Him with it by seeking first His kingdom and waiting for his glorious return to make everything sad untrue and to right every wrong let's pray father we thank you for this text and we thank you that in it you we see your heart for the poor and your heart for us see that you Love us. That you sent Jesus to redeem us from our slavery to sin at the cost of his life. We thank you that Christ died so our sins could be forgiven. Rose from the dead so that we might be free from death and enjoy eternal life. Lord, thank you for these things. Make us a people who are filled with thankfulness and the joy that only your Spirit can give. We thank you for Jesus, our Jubilee, in whose name we pray. Amen.